We thought you were dead. I was. I'm better now. You tell your governments that the only man to survive Zahadum sends this message. We can end this, not just for now, not just for the next thousand years, but forever. I stand before you as proof that it can be done. We can fight and we can win, but only if we do it together. Can I count on you? Can I count on you? Will you stand together? Remember what I said before about there must be another way? I was wrong. Kill him. Captain Sheridan returns. We can end this once and for all. But the Vorlogs have their own final solution. What are you hiding from me? On an all-new Babylon 5. You have transmissions holding. Patch incoming signal. Full audio and video decode. Purple files accessed. What you are about to see has never been shown to anyone outside the break house. the podcast land welcome to gray 17 a babylon 5 podcast a part of the front row network and npr illinois community voices we're a group of newbies watching babylon 5 for the very first time as well as a bunch of first ones who have watched babylon 5 far too many times and we are in season four episode three the summoning my name is scott and with me is emily blake jesse justin and kevin Mike and Nicole are on the road, not together, although that would be a fun little buddy cop show. So we're going to have them come back sooner or later. Jesse's like, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't at all be a good show. Come on. It would be, be a terrible show. No. <laughs> so we're going to start talking about the summoning. But before we do that, a reminder to please check out our social media, specifically Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, all linked down below. Our newbies are pretty active on the Facebook side, as well as uh, Blake and I are pretty active on the Twitter side, trying to piss off JMS at least once a week, Blake, right? Correct. Apparently, I've got ninjas coming after me now. <laughs> but uh, along with that, you all, we also have our Discord. And if you join our Patreon, which we just had a few other folks join our Patreon from last week, which Emily was trying to figure out why that's the case, because... Uh, if you listened to our show last week, I'm not entirely sure why you would decide now is the time to come support these guys. But it's some of you did. <laughs> some of you did, so welcome. But thank uh, you nonetheless. Yes, thank you very much. So, 
If you join our Patreon, you'll have access to our Discord, which includes both a non-spoiler and spoiler disc, uh, discussion thread, which I haven't actually checked to see what the folks are talking about this past few days, but I do know the spoiler thread has been going fairly constant, so if you want to check that out, you can join us there. And a special thanks to our members of the Grey Council, our producers who are listed down below, who provide the largest donation each and every month. We really do appreciate it. We actually just used some of the Patreon money for something that we will probably be able to announce in a week or two. So thanks again for Patreon folks for really supporting the show. We'll go ahead and dive in to our discussion. And first off, I believe Jesse has a synopsis for us. I do. <clears throat> Zack makes a discovery in the search for Garibaldi. Dylan's plan to attack the shadows runs into trouble. Ivanova and Marcus attempt to solicit aid from the first ones. So Ivanova and Marcus are soliciting nothing. Each no. other. <laughs> one of them is trying. The other mm -hmm. one, not so much. Let's go ahead and hear from our first one, our, our newbies, not our first ones, our newbies on... What they felt about this episode with their first impressions. And we'll go to Jesse first. First impressions on the summoning. Um, this one pissed me off. Excellent. Like fucking piss. Um, what's the what's the uh yep. <laughs> what's the um what the fuck is the Blondo's fucking race? God. The Centauri. There it is. You what? can send your hate mail and tell us how Jesse needs to get back into the kitchen. Oh, holy There's shit. There's a story my there. Stop working. There's Who's the Centauri, the Centauri leader? Emperor Katagia. Yeah, fuck that guy, first of all. <laughs> um, I, he, it just, when I saw Jakar on the ground the very first time, I was uh, pissed. Um, but overall, I really enjoyed this episode. There was a lot in this episode a lot like a lot of resolution to a lot of like loose ends so it was it was good good to see sheridan back um good to see garibaldi back um yeah enjoyed it a lot yeah to your point on the loose ends i think you guys are going to find in season four that jms is really trying to churn a lot of stuff out and get stuff moving very quickly and as i think jesse you pointed out last week you're getting to a point where you really want to keep watching episode to episode so that's going to continue for season four i hate to tell you right justin first impressions yeah i mean i agree with jesse that's the whole jakar londo and veer thing was really really hard to watch um but it was also made for really good television at the same time um i can't wait to see uh Cartagia get his just desserts for real mm -hmm. and then definitely yeah the whole fam damley's back together and shit's shit's escalating again man it's uh it's starting to all kind of really come to a head with uh you know sheridan coming back and saying we're gonna end this shit and we're gonna end it for good but and then kind of very interesting now we finally know why new kosh is a real dick is because the vorlons are up to shenanigans so it's gonna get it's gonna get real messy Emily, first impressions. Um, well, I felt like a giant asshole after some of the comments we made last week about Lita and the Borlon after seeing <laughs> just how bad Kosh is has been treating her. Um, it was a, overall it was a really good episode. The scenes with Jakar and Londo are amazing as always. I don't think they've had a bad like scene together ever that I can think of. And I'm interested to see how it's going to work with Sheridan being back on B5. Because I'm wondering if people are going to actually trust that he's still him or if he's 
been altered somehow after being on Zahadu. Emily, I knew for sure you would be the one to say, can we trust Sheridan now? Can we? <laughs> Is, no <laughs> Is he no just one. a meat puppet? Especially the Borlon, because, um, yeah, they seem like they are not quite the trustworthy beings they tried to present themselves as when we first started the show. That is very, very true. I'm sure we'll talk about it more here in a moment. But before then, let's talk to our first ones, those of us who have watched the entire show. Kevin, first impressions. This is a good episode. Um, the the scene, as disturbing and awful as it is, uh, with... Uh, Andreas Katsoulis and Cartagia and uh, both Londo and Veer is an amazing scene, even though it's painful. Um, I mean, Katsoulis does a fantastic job in that scene. He talked about how draining it was to do that scene. He's not a method actor. He doesn't call up, um, you know, personal stuff to, uh, you know, utilize while he's acting. But he just said it was incredibly draining, that scene. Um, you know, it's good to have Sheridan back, um, Garibaldi back. Uh, Franklin seems to be, uh, you know, a uh, a human being <laughs> now, at least uh, a little bit better one than he was before. So, uh, yeah, a great episode. Blake? So I like this episode also, and I think a big part of that is Andreas Katsoulis in this one. Uh, even that scene in the throne room where they're having him be the gesture and kind of taunt him with the glass of water. And he doesn't really say anything in that scene, but just the looks he gives and the expressions and the way he acts that scene physically. In addition to then those exchanges with Londo and the cell, as well as other scenes uh, in this episode. So I think it's a great episode for him alone. And then getting Sheridan back in that little speech that we've talked about a couple times where he stands there and gives that rallying cry of, you know, we can end this war and not just now or not just for another thousand years, but end it forever. Uh, to start to really rally getting everyone together for a final showdown. Yeah, for me, uh, to Jesse's point, I like that this episode wraps up a lot of questions that we've had, but also continues to drive the plot along. We we now know, as been mentioned, that um, Sheridan's back, Garibaldi's back. We have some background on both of them that we're obviously going to have to deal with. But we also know what the Vorlons are trying to do now, and they've actually already started. And we have a pretty good idea where this whole Centauri thing is going to go to, and we're only in Episode 3. If you look back at Season 2 and Season 3, especially Season 2 when they were introducing Sheridan, most of us thought that those first few episodes kind of dragged on as we were trying to get to know the new characters, get to know the idea of how how this show is going to change. But with Season 4... It feels like we're just completely going on all cylinders, and I really do appreciate that. This episode, I also, this has my favorite Veer quote ever, and I just love how Stephen First handles that entire scene in the garden and his line, remember what I said before? There must be another way. I was wrong. Kill him. I'm just, ah, Veer! <laughs> so um, I'm looking forward to talking about the Centauri stuff a lot. Let's go ahead and dive in. And I think, uh, well, Emily, you want to start first. Where are we going to go? Okay. I actually have a question for Justin because it was the first thing I thought of when we see Garibaldi in the pod after the other ship has been blown up and it says program initiated. With all the saran wrap? <laughs> yes. Do you think he's become a sleeper agent? Did that oh, 100%. little... 100%, you know, and that's, you know, it, yeah, without a doubt, 
it's I don't think he's because at first I was like watching that scene like no he's not like I'm like I don't think they have androids or clones in Babylon 5 universe so has to be a sleeper agent because they they basically turned him on and he's going to be Garibaldi until they decide they need him to be something else so we'll see how that goes yeah that was uh, Justin's prediction last week and we did answer it beyond the rim but he can't listen to that so he may be right he may be wrong only we know for sure. And I know you love that, Justin. So. I'll find out when I find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so where we want... Oh, Jesse just rose her hand. So, Jesse, go for it. I got to get it out of the way because I feel like if we wait until the end of the podcast, shit is going to derail. So let's just derail it early. It never happens. Start it. The whole thing with Lita and Kosh. Okay. You pulled out of me too soon. What in the absolute fuck <laughs> did I just hear? Like, I, my husband was in the other room, and he goes, hey, yo. <laughs> Nowhere. Um, he treats her like shit. He won't let her have any of her, her things in her room. Like, what is absolutely happening that she has to do this? Like, what was the deal that was made? Is that something that we already know, or are we just, are we well, still waiting? We know that she... After she had her interaction with Kosh in the gathering, we know that she, on her own fruition, went out in search of the Vorlons and in search of the Vorlon homeworld because she had to find answers. Supposedly they gave her answers and obviously gave her gills and a few other things as well, too. And so she was speaking on behalf of the Vorlons, and she still is, as kind of an attache. She's like the Vera Lanier to Kosh. And we know that she's also their, you know... They're trained when needed. Uh, but aside from that, that's all we know so far. And she put herself in an escape pod and would have died had they not come and got her and waited until the last possible minute. Yeah, she forced the issue to get them. At least that's what she believes, and that's what we are led to believe so far, is she forced the issue for them to pick her up. So she did all this knowing that, gosh, 1.0, yeah. gosh, original. The one she had was, contact with originally, yep. Was going to be the one that like did all this stuff but she didn't she didn't wow. like bang I don't, on yeah i don't know if that's the case jesse because when she went out on her own kosh was still on b5 she went to the vorlon homeworld okay so i don't think she was searching for kosh because she knew where he was but she wanted more answers from the vorlons in general well she's and then she, she got it <laughs> mm-hmm. the new kosh is a dick yeah. Uh, new Kosh, Kosh 2.0, old Kosh, whatever you want to call him. He is definitely a dick. And, you know, this has kind of been, we kind of got hints of this in the, the tail end of season three and into now season four is Lita knows a little bit more than what she's letting on. Like when, uh, 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 who came into her quarters? I can't, I can't remember. Was it? It was Ivanova, right? Okay. And then Ivanova. Yeah, well, Ivanova. Yeah, the first, and then Ivanova, yeah. Well, yeah, the second time Ivanova comes in when she's getting paged to Sheridan's office, and uh, Lita goes to Ivanova and says, "You know." So Lita has been holding back stuff, and so we just don't know how much she's holding back so far. Emily. Yeah, that was very awkward phrasing for that particular scene, but it was also really disturbing because we kind of got the sense early on that this new Kosh was. A dick and now he just seems like straight up abusive towards her and i was starting to wonder if the vorlon manipulated her in a similar way to how the shadows manipulated anna 
if they use some of the same sort of tactics or something. And if this is what, like, how much of this she actually agreed to and how much of this is Kosh 2.0 just going wild with power and being able to treat her however in the hell he wants to treat her because she doesn't really have a way to do anything about it. Yeah. In my career, I've worked with domestic violence programs quite a bit, and this is DV in a nutshell. I mean, he is dismissive. He's abusive. He's taking away everything that makes her a human. It's it's an absolutely an abusive relationship at the least. Justin, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, I'm I stand along with everybody else and that whole comment, especially after the end of last week's episode, um, which is what I expect to be uh, met as a very serious line in this scene, made me just about spit my drink all over the place. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I agree with you, Scott. That's kind of what I was going to say along the lines is this shows all of the red flags for a domestic abuse situation. And I give, I give Lita credit for, she'd finally had enough of it and she turned to come at him. Like she was going to, she, she was going to attack him before he shot her. And then, and then he's like, well, you want to see what's really in my mind? And I think that's finally what broke her was that, was that whole, like he transmitted, we didn't get to see it because it kind of went to the next scene, but he transmitted all the, he told her, probably told her everything and now it just it broke her to the point to where now she has no choice but to completely go against him so you know things might end up getting worse for lita before they get better unfortunately let me show you our planet killer enjoy yeah the vorlon death star yeah like so i also think it's important to keep in mind how the vorlons with the exception of original kosh view view humanity and anyone else in the galaxy Mm -hmm. we're just pawns to them they have no interest they don't care exactly what we want it's we're nothing but pawns and their greater scheme of shit against the shadows and this episode even breaks it down at one time there was agreement they would both do their own thing they stayed away from each other and somewhere one of the two of them decided their way was the only way and they were right and now it's anybody else in the middle is manipulated and a pawn to serve their ends of being the dominant one in the galaxy with whose view wins out and I think this is a perfect example of that between Kosh 1.0 and Kosh 2.0 is how they treat Lita and the other humans and aliens that they interact with is very emblematic of that. Uh, Justin, you mentioned the Vorlon planet killer, though, and I do have to love I'm reading through the background on this episode. And one of the things JMS touched on was back on the Usenet, some people were kind of bitching about that, about a planet uh, busting weapon is so improbable that it seems more as magic than technology. And we're kind of complaining about it. And, you know, you mentioned it. it's like at this point, Star Wars had been out for quite a while. They had a Death Star. We have seen planet killing devices by this point in science fiction. Star Trek had the Doomsday Machine and other things. So uh, JMS kind of went off a little bit and mentioned that it was uh, Arthur C. Clarke who pointed out that uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from uh, magic. And if you really want to argue Arthur C. Clarke, feel free. And that was another one of his little just back of the fans of shut up and just let it be. So I decided to mention that with the Vorlon planet killer and even people complaining then about what was technology and sci-fi because, you know, we don't see that with any sci-fi shows today at all. How much you want to bet it was a Zork guy? It was the same dude. It very well might be. <laughs> Jesse. Um. So I guess up until recently, though, we didn't see that, that we didn't see the Vorlon in that light. Like, we are just now hearing that they have the two, 
you know, that they, that the shadows and the Borlons have their own theories and, you know, only one or the other is right. But like based off the way that Kosh acted in Kosh, original Kosh, OG Kosh, um, acted in season one and two and up until when he died, um, he he seemed to care about the humans. He cared about Sheridan. He cared. He seems to care about Lita. Like yes, he was quiet and guarded, but he was. He seemed to be more caring than Kosh 2.0. Like Kosh 2.0 totally falls into that left or right, and Kosh OG Kosh seems a little bit different to me. Kevin, did you have something? No, I just don't know. Just don't know how to raise your hand. <laughs> After they redesigned Zoom, I didn't know how to raise my hand. He had a boomer gotcha. moment. So. We're still dealing with the Babylon 5 stuff, so we're talking about Lita and Kosh. We also have Delenn continuing to try to put together her fleet, and then we also have Ivanova and Marcus going out and trying to bring in some first ones. So y'all want to talk about that at all? No. Oh, I'm, I'm sure we're going to have to dive into the Ivanova and Marcus scene, and I'm watching Jesse's reaction here. <laughs> Jesse's saying, no, no, I'm good. They have that conversation on the uh, White Star about uh, Marcus and his... Uh, Lack of experience. Hasn't lost his V-card yet. Jesse's just shaking her head emphatically. No, I don't listen. This is like one of the, the times that they were kissing with their eyes open. You know what? Marcus has a crush. He has a crush on Ivanova, and he's like explaining to her how he's going to set up this whole thing and lose his virginity to her, and we're moving on. Like I, I did like his line, though. Our Ivanova says, you're having delusions of grandeur, and he basically said, well, if you're going to have delusions, might as well think you're a god. Right. It's awful cute, though. I think it's cute. He's yeah. had a crush. He's had a crush from you know the time she handed what she hand him, and that she handed him something. And he's like, oh, thank you. The flowers. Cause yeah, but she, she was thought, like, yeah, not being nice to him, and he thought she was. Yeah. I did love though, in typical Ivanova fashion, when the sensors go off on the ship. Is it a unicorn? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, Emily. I was trying to figure out if she was acting like she didn't know what he was talking about or if she is really just missing clueless. it. Mm-hmm. Like, is it is she that clueless or is she trying to not just throw him in the dumpster? Or is she just <laughs> distracted? Yeah. Could it be I mean, a little bit of She seems like the type who is so into the mission that she just seems a little oblivious sometimes to me. So I'm wondering if she just is barely registering the whole conversation. Then what's a little backup on that scene, too. So there was the before they got to the White Star, there was that scene in the hallway where uh, she was asking Dylan to borrow the White Star. That was actually filmed uh, for the for a previous episode about whatever happened to Mr. Garibaldi. Uh, That was not actually filmed for this one. Uh, so it was filmed for that when they had that whole exchange about her uh, teaching herself Mimbari and Lynn ordering anybody is not to laugh when she tried to use it. Yeah, and this goes along with your your comment previously, Blake, about how JMS is great at injecting some humor into a tough mm-hmm. episode because that whole scene's pretty funny. I mean, she's she's butchering their language, trying very hard, but still saying, you know, saying it not quite right. And it's it's a nice funny scene at the beginning of of a pretty serious episode. Um I think that yeah, Jason Carter even talks about how, you know, doing the math, he's like, so he was a 30-year-old mechanic uh who had you know, no experience, kind of a loner, and then goes into, uh, you know, the the ranger training for, you know, two some, you know, two-ish years and is now on, 
B5 and still an experienced, you know, he says, well, you know, the, the guy just is, is kind of a loner and he's a hopeless romantic. And that's pretty clear. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, Emily, to your point as well. I think it's very clear she understands that he's a little lost puppy. Uh, I mean, we've seen that now for two seasons. but So I think she's playing dumb a little bit. But also I think that he is just oblivious enough to where he can't, you know, land the pickup line that she doesn't get it fully. And uh, to that scene, Blake, you're referring to, I mean – what hat frack rat catcher and brick hat lingerie is not going to do well in a battle question mark well i mean i'm not saying that if they tried to fire the lingerie at the shadows it wouldn't do anything but you never know as we have seen in this show ivanova has several pieces of nightgown material that i think the shadows would at least take a little second glance at maybe absolutely that nice blue nightgown we've seen her in before Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Justin, would you like to talk about the nightgowns? Um, no, I'll keep those thoughts into my head. <laughs> See if I ruin a few socks later on. Oh, but, um, <laughs> my God. You can join our Patreon at the link down below, because some of you, I don't know. Go ahead, That Justin. number just went down. Weird um, fuckers. But anyway... <laughs> What was I going to say before that? What were you going to say? He derailed himself, folks. <laughs> okay, I'm back on it. Um, okay. It Honestly, Marcus's re- revelation really didn't shock me at all, considering the fact that it sounds, unless I misunderstand his kind of backstory a little bit, it sounds like he's been dealing with pretty heavy hot, stuff most of his life. You know, his brother went off to fight to join the Rangers, got killed. So he felt the obligation to go after him. And he's been kind of in this warrior monk group kind of ever since he was in a younger age. So, I mean, that 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 doesn't surprise me at all. And it kind of even make, you know, humanizes him a little bit. That's all I was going to say. Sorry for the first part. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're no, not. no, I'm not. So anything on the Dillon piece? I mean, it's just an extension of what we saw already. Now, as we've seen, the League is going against her, which the League doesn't even really exist right now, but the members of the former League are going against her. Uh, I know some of you guys have been kind of, I won't say dogging on Dillon, but you haven't been really fans of how Dillon has kind of interacted when she's been a partner, quote unquote, with Sheridan and how she has agency in that. I mean, how do you guys feel about her dealing with these situations when Sheridan, to her idea, is still dead until the very end? Kevin. You know, I, I've come around to some of particularly Emily's thinking where early in the the relationship, it came off a little strange. Um, it, it didn't, it felt a little forced, didn't seem natural, um, but it's it's felt very, very natural and very genuine for quite some time now. It was just that early part where she seemed a little overly puppyish towards him uh, that I found less believable. But I think the relationship has gotten to the point now where it's very sweet and it's a very likable uh, relationship very believable and you know, it was a sweet moment them uh, on that balcony catwalk type um you know where they just embrace and 
uh, you know, Lanier kind of looks on and he's just like that. The look on, on Bill Mooney's face in that scene, I, it sticks with me too, because he's just like, you son of a bitch, you're alive. That's awesome. Is it, is, is he actually, is it awesome for Lanier that he's alive? I mean, we, we have learned before that Lanier loves Dylan, not as he put it, not in the way that you see love, but I love Dylan. And then also I, I, I find it interesting in this, episode that she says i've lost everyone that's dear to me and she mentions um since sheridan and a few other people but she doesn't mention lanier you know uh, the the look on his face seemed very genuine to me it looked like a well shit that's awesome i mean he i i don't know maybe i'm off base but i i think Deep down, he probably knows how much Delenn loves Sheridan and that it's not there for the two of them. So why shouldn't she be happy? Mm-hmm. But perhaps I'm off base. I don't know. But that that look of of uh, I don't know. I don't know if relief is the right way to put it. But the the look that Lunar has looked pretty genuine to me. Bill, if you're listening, <laughs> answer my messages, man. I've been bugging you for a year, and you can come and answer the question for us. And the actor strike is over, thank God. Good job, actors. Yeah. Uh, Awesome contract. I have been very, very good of not bugging the actors during the strike, but now the floodgates, they have all. So, Bill, call me. Justin, what do you got? Um, To kind of first answer a little bit on Kevin's point, um, I think it was genuine. Like, I think the relief is real. Like, he's been worried about Delenn enough to betray her trust and go to Franklin. And now that's, you know, because she, you know, the amount of grief that she was dealing with over what she thought was Sheridan's death. So now that he's back in the picture, I think he has nothing to be but happy that she'll finally get back to her old self and she'll be okay. Um, But what I was going to say regarding Delenn herself was I thought when she's had to step in and even, in this episode kind of run the entire station and everyone else's absence. I thought she did a phenomenal job. And I think she's hand, she is handling, this is the best I've seen her actually handle the, the pressures of command on this, on this kind of size scale. So I think she's doing a great job and I think she's going to come out of this a much stronger leader, even though going through all the hardships and grief that she went through, she's going to be a much stronger leader going forward. Emily. I agree with Justin. I think it was a good episode for her and shows her capabilities. I feel like we've kind of lost some of that because the focus has been kind of on her and Sheridan working as a team. Um, So I'm really not sure how I feel about him being back. And to be quite honest, I was actually hoping for a Garibaldi clone based on the look on Garibaldi's face. I was like, ooh, did we get something fun like a Garibaldi clown? And yeah, I was disappointed. Emily, you and I were having a sidebar about Archer and Sheridan that I think was pretty insightful. So what'd you say about that? Captain Um, Archer for those playing the home game. Jesse's like, I don't know who that is. Yeah, I don't like Sheridan for the same reason that I don't like Archer. I feel like frequently for how dark the situation is and how serious it is, I don't feel that that's conveyed somehow through his character. I don't know if it's the writing, the acting, the directing. Like, I'm not quite sure where I feel like it's missing something. Whereas, and I'm going to bring in another Star Trek because it's me, DS9, you see Cisco change. And as the series gets darker, he changes with it. And I feel we haven't seen that as much. And I'm expecting that. 
I want lots of hate for bringing in a two Star Trek series to talk about this show. Hey, I just go back to the meme of Cisco from season one of DS9. Picard met Q, quoted some Shakespeare, and had to deal with him for seven years, actually more with Star Trek Picard. Cisco met Q, punched him in the face, never dealt with Q ever again. <laughs> you had <laughs> <And> Cisco. <laughs> Jesse. Well, I- Emily, we will probably want to have a side <laughs> chat about that because uh, your your uh, viewpoint on uh, Archer is blasphemous, and I didn't realize that we had a blasphemer on here. But you got two, Kevin. Yeah, well. Oh, yeah. that's not the only thing I can blaspheme on. So. Oh, geez, I have an unpopular opinion. <laughs> Shocker. Okay. Let, let me lay this out real quick, okay? I fucking love Quantum Leap as a kid, and uh, so Scott Bakula is. I believe Five time Buku. Uh, he's great. But, You're not uh, and I was really excited when Enterprise got announced, and I was like, oh, shit, Scott Bakula's going to be the first captain. That makes perfect sense, because he's, like, going to be Kirk's hero. And they played him so incompetently the entire series, especially in season three, which I, 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 I agree with a lot of people. Season three was a good turnaround for the show. But he was played so incompetently, like he was some kind of guy from 24 beating up on uh, terrorists and stuff after 9-11. And he just, even in season four, which is the the best season of Enterprise, he's just so fucking stupid. Yeah. No, but okay. (laughs) Back to Babylon 5. Yes, yes, yes. B5. Uh, do you, Justin, when you were talking about how he came back and everything, I would, there's a shirt out there floating in the fandom, which I'm sure you can buy from 15 different sources. Not our source, though. I need to fix that. And all it is is a shadow ship, and it says, went to Zaha Doom. Didn't die. I want Oh, nice. <laughs> What's the line he gives? I thought you went to, I thought you died. Yes, but I got better. Yeah. Okay. I... <laughs> he said, I'm better now. And I'm the first now. thing I thought of was, she turned me into a newt. A newt. I got better. <laughs> like, that's all I could think of was Monty Python. I was like, well, that scene is officially ruined for me. Thank you, Brain, for that little insight. Oh, but to wrap say, up the... Oh, don't say newt or salamander. We'll get into a Voyager discussion. That's not good. Oh, God. You don't leave <laughs> salamander children behind on the planet. Oh, God. Thank you, Brandon Braga, for such a shitty episode. No, we just don't fucking watch that episode and pretend it never fucking <laughs> when, when Brandon Braga is given just one story to deal with, he's usually pretty good. It's when he's given a show to run is the problem. Yeah, that is a problem. <laughs> um, what are you guys talking about still? Voyager? <laughs> Everything but B5? The Voyager's a big dildo in space, Jesse. Just go with it. <laughs> It truly is. Uh, to wrap up the Delenn conversation real quick, uh, I agree with all of you, and I think this was a really good episode for Delenn. I especially like that when Lanier called her down to the Zocalo, she didn't hesitate. She said, I'll be down there in a minute. Knowing exactly what she was walking into was going to be a mob. And the mob was about to turn on her. In fact, it did before Sheridan just deus ex machina everything. So he, uh, she walked into a riot and didn't blink. So I think that was really strong on Delenn's part. Right. I agree. Badass. Let's go ahead and leave B5 and move over to Centauri Prime and talk about the good Londo and Jakar and everyone involved. Mm. Jesse, you have something you want to add? I'm just sick with this whole fucking scene and the emperor and all of it. I just, 
I it surprises me how much I've grown to really thoroughly just enjoy Jakar because you know the first season we were like this is this guy sucks he's an asshole and now it's like I like somebody's being mean to him and I'm yeah it just makes me irritated and you know I just wonder how far like when he said that he had cut his hands off I was like stop it like I literally was like no my husband's like what's wrong I'm like no he better not not have hands like it's just a it's a mess the whole thing is a mess the way they played it though you you, you didn't know I mean no Picard yeah, could have lost his hands right right Kevin the the guy that plays Emperor Cartesia, you know, Wortham Krimmer is amazing. I mean, the guy just can flip on a dime. He seems like a psychopath, yet, mm-hmm. you know, totally totally reasonable except when you listen to what he's saying. Uh, but his manner is, you know, completely off for, for the words that are coming out of his mouth. I mean, that guy can really do a scary psychopath quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we get more of, you know, the, the great scenes in this series between, um, Katsulis and Jersik, um, and, you know, they, they kind of highlight in this a little bit, you know, a couple of the, the similarities between the two, the two characters in this, uh, very well even though they're very different, but they do have some similarities, some, some very important ones. Um, they're both willing to uh, sacrifice to get what they want um, is one. Um, I just, I can't get over that, that, that scene. It's just, it's so heartbreaking to watch and the way that it was directed, you know, in this, in this episode where they're doing like close up, you know, fast, um, you know, fast camera changes between, you know, Veer and between um, Jakar and Londo and the Emperor. It's it's an amazingly directed scene. And I think it's by a first time director. I don't think that I I've seen John McPherson uh, in the director role before. I'm not familiar with him, but I thought it was very good. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Kremer. Um he doesn't have much in his background, and he isn't acting anymore from what I can tell. And aside from 148 episodes of Days of Our Lives, most of what he did was like one-offs in sitcoms or in primetime dramedies, but again, one-offs and he was done. And even his IMDb credit for his birthday has his date of birth, but for his year, it's 19 question mark, question mark. So not much is known about this guy, although he does hail from Chicago, so he's got that going for so I'm I'm glad you pointed him out because he is absolutely he's just he chews the scenery but he chews it in the right way he's not annoying with it you can tell this guy's got some crazy eyes man when you look at him he's just not all there especially when he's talking about I just want my scream I cannot go without a scream it's no fun I'm like oh mm. God. <laughs> and then Jesse's like mm, no <laughs> mm. Yeah, the the IMDb for this director, John McPherson, doesn't even list Babylon 5 on it, so there's obviously an issue with it. He uh, did do two episodes of V, the uh, the series. I see that. Not the miniseries, the series. Mm. Justin, what do you got? Well, yeah, uh, it's 
Cartagia is just so brilliantly written and acted. He gives you the response you're supposed to have. I have never wanted a character to die this much since Joffrey Baratheon. <laughs> you know, and I just, I can't wait. I'm eagerly awaiting for, you know, Cartagia to get what's coming to him. So that means it's, it the character's hitting the way it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I take from um, first the garden scene with him is... It's the the elephant in the room is the blood on his hands, and it's just such a crazy way that they just use that just to speak volumes about what Cartagena really is, and he's just acting like nothing's nothing's wrong, you know, carrying on with his day, you know, and you know how dare he question my authority like this, and it's it's everything's all Jakar's fault, and so it's it's yeah, it just makes your skin crawl whenever that guy's on screen, so. I thought I it's great, but it's also very hard to watch at the same time. And then um, the one scene that I kind of hit me hard, too, was the dungeon scene that nobody's really mentioned yet of when, you know, Wando goes to basically beg him to give in and Jakar just won't do it. And he's like, well, I need you. You need me. He won't do it. If I scream, I'm no longer a Narn. And Wando makes a really good point of, well, you may not be a Narn, but are all the people who are in bondage right now, are they not Narns? No, they're slaves, and they're probably going to turn into dead slaves. So I think that probably is what had to get through to Jakar, because even sitting there when he was getting whipped and knowing he was approaching death if he didn't do something, and just the Londo having to mouth him, still beg him right there in front of the Emperor before he finally did it. I mean, it's... Oh, I can't say enough about it. It's amazing, and it's wrenching. And that's Just, why a lot of the people who've mentioned, you know, when I've known some people, I've talked to a couple of fans from the podcast, and, you know, Jim Pridgen and I have talked when we've seen each other in person. Um, just I understand why those two are so endearing to fans. Mm-hmm. Just, just the way that they've been the entire series. It's just, I mean, it makes me, though probably as much as I love the Vorlons, that love is changing. And I think now it's, I'm beginning to kind of line up with the way most of other B5 fandom is. Just in that scene too, what I love about it is Chikar keeps saying, you don't understand, you don't understand what this means. And Londo and Peter plays this so well when he turns back around as he's leaving. Yes, I do. Mm -hmm. Because Londo has the same pride that Jakar does, and he knows exactly what he's asking Jakar to do, give up his pride, which also is a callback, too. Back all the way in season one with Parliament of Dreams, when uh, uh, Jakar was, had that creepy assassin with the glasses following him around and had the pain givers on him, Jakar said he'd rather die than cry out. This guy has a lot of pride. What else, guys? Emily. I was really impressed with how Londo has been able to maintain his poker face while dealing with Cartagia and listening to the absolute horrific shit coming out of his mouth. Like in the garden scene where Cartagia has blood on his hands and was like, I might have to remove his hands. And I mean, his ability to keep a pretty solid poker face while looking at this man saying this horrible stuff, knowing that this guy isn't making it up. He is absolutely unhinged. He is cruel to new levels. And he just has to stand there like, I'm not planning your death at all. It's <laughs> interesting. Sorry. It, and then when they go in the dungeon and, like, 
the way he's able to maintain composure. Because I would think, you know, it's acting. Obviously, you know, it's acting. But still going through those scenes is likely to trigger some emotion. And being able to, like, restrain that and hold it in is so impressive to me. Yeah, I'm surprised that Cartesia hasn't focused on Veer at all. He probably just sees him as a peon, so Mm -hmm. he probably doesn't pay him a lot of mind. But uh, if uh, if Veer is uh, good at anything... It is not a poker face. <laughs> so, um, you know, he, he's got to be careful because, um, you know, clearly the guy's unhinged and him being uh, obvious about anything is not a good thing. But Stephen First plays this episode incredibly well. I mean, you really, you really feel what he's feeling in his facial reactions because there's, you know, a couple of couple of points where he's not talking a lot, but uh, he's saying everything with his face. Yeah, to that point, too, I think it's really important in that garden scene that you do have Stephen first right next to Peter, uh, because to Emily's point, Londo is doing everything to be exactly what he needs to be, a strong person of the court who is not going to question Cartagia, but also stand up to him, which is a conversation we had last week as well, too. And then you've got Veer, who is just being Veer, to Kevin's point, and that juxtaposition makes Londo stand out even more to the viewer as somebody who is really holding his own here, and that's really important. And to Kevin, to your point, I, I think Cartagia is used to sniveling people all around him. He just ignores them. Mm-hmm. So it's, he tosses the bowl right. to Veer, and then the other guy just comes up and takes the bowl. Both of them have no power in this situation at all, and Cartagia just doesn't care about them, where he does care about Londo because Londo's standing up to him in his own little way. Justin, what you got? Yeah, I mean, it's what I was going to say is I don't think – I think somebody had mentioned something about hopefully he doesn't come after Veer or something like that. I don't think Veer's in any, any danger. Cartagia barely knows he exists. Like when he looked at him in the garden, he was like, why are you here? And then just like you said, Scott just tosses the bowl like he's just another servant and carries on his way. So I don't even think even like you could tell that Veer could not hold his disgust and horror during the the whole whipping scene. I don't think Cartagia even noticed. He wasn't paying attention. He was delighting in what he was watching too much. So I think Veer is perfectly safe. Anybody else have anything they want to add about the Centauri? Anything else we got to talk about with this episode before we move into questions, predictions, guys? Good talk. <laughs> Are we going to talk about Garibaldi coming back? Because we kind of brushed over it. Like, he was in the pod. And well, what are things going on with him? We ignored him last episode, too, so it's just par for the course, Emily. We cannot ignore him. I had to watch this show a second, this episode a second time, to make sure I got the timing right. Because I was... Because of the program initiated when he's in the pod and he's in a saran wrap suit. And I was had to go back and confirm that that was after the other ship blew up. And that's when they had like locked onto his pod. Like there was some triggering mechanism that, okay, now the people we want to have him have him back. So we're going to initiate something. What the hell are they initiating? What did they do to Garibaldi? I must know. And if I don't find out in the next two episodes, I'm going to be super, super salty. Just a heads up. You may or may not want to buy some salt. Just saying. It was a lot of saran wrap, wasn't it? They, like, emptied out a grocery store of saran wrap for that episode. Justin. Well, and then on top of it, if we want to kind of convolute the waters a little bit more, whose ship was that? It wasn't a Psycor ship. So 
like I said, who was transporting him? Where were they going? I personally think they intended for him to be found. Like, I wouldn't be shocked at all if there wasn't, if it, the ship was just on autopilot. And it, when they shot out the engines, it jettisoned the escape pod and blew up. I think this is exactly what Psychor wanted, was for him to be found, was to find a reason for him to be delivered back to Babylon 5 without anybody knowing where exactly he was or what happened to him because why have why have a meat puppet you know you know sleeper agent if everybody knows where you've been the entire time so mm-hmm. that's kind of what i think the whole thing was is they intended for him to be found and they activated him and woke him up started the program you know, quote unquote programming as he was being rescued so it all went according to plan we'll just have to see how this plan unfolds since we're forgetting garibaldi i also we forgot a little bit uh zach who is the one who got this all done getting garibaldi back and i do love that jeff conway gets some stuff to do here not much but he is one of the credited actors now so the fact that he gets to play some part which also is a little bit of trivia that i wanted to throw out to all of you that i almost forgot about as well this is the first episode since The Gathering, believe it or not, the first episode of the entire show that has had everyone who is in the opening credits actually in the episode for that episode. Hmm. It's the no first kidding. time in the entire show since the pilot where everyone who's shown at the front end of the show actually has a part in this episode. It's a little interesting thing when you deal with an ensemble cast like this. A lot of people just come and go. But I think it's also because the main folks, as we've gotten deeper into the show, have gotten bigger contracts, too. So, like, we remember when we were talking about uh, the uh, Talia, and she was only here for eight episodes, but she was signed on for 12 and so forth and so on. It was the same thing for Peter and Andreas in season one. They didn't have a full contract for every episode. In season four and back in season three, they did. So we're gonna, they're, they're going to get more screen time. So it's just interesting that this is the first time that's happened. Okay, let's go ahead and go into questions and predictions. And for those of you who are just joining us, and after last week's episode, again, I have no idea why you're just joining us, but welcome. We ask our newbies if they have any lingering questions about the episode, and then also to make any predictions they may have about what's to come, because they have not watched anything past the summoning. So we'll get their questions and predictions, and then we will kick them out the airlock, and after our credits, we'll go into Beyond the Rim, where we'll talk spoilers, and go into a little bit more detail about the episode, and then also answer all their questions and predictions, and really annoy the shit out of them, because they can't listen to it for another year. So let's go to, uh, and Jesse is flipping me off right now. (laughs) Thanks, Jesse. Love you, too. Because of that, let's go to Jesse first. Questions and predictions, Jesse. Uh, okay. Um, first, <clears throat> what is go- what's going to happen to Lita? Like, I know that she's now moving in a direction that everybody's saying she can't. Like, she's not allowed to break free from him. So I'm curious what is going to what's going to come out of that. Um, my second question is, how long do we have to wait to see Gardasia uh, murdered? Really looking forward to that. Um. And I, you know, here's the thing is like, I want to know the scene with Jakar and Londo where Londo's the emperor and Jakar's killing him. I like that scene keeps going through my head because I feel like we're getting closer to that. And I want to know when that happens. And I know that's a very random question. But, I can answer um, that one for you because we were told in War Without End, it's 17 years after season three. Yeah, but does it happen within season five? 
I'm not going to answer that question. Well, at that's all. the fucking question. Okay, I was just timeline wise. If this is 2260, it happens around 2276. So then, in theory, we won't see it because every new season is a new year. Unless that changes. Hmm. 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 That's very. It's very first ones of you. I tried um, to answer your question, and I actually <laughs> did. You just didn't ask the right question. Um, my prediction about Sheridan not being dead came true. Thank you, Kevin. Um, <laughs> uh, and I don't have any predictions. I'm just gonna start watching the whole fucking out the whole series again because I I've, I'm not deep enough into this. I feel like I need to watch it all over. You'll start catching a lot of stuff. You'll be like, oh, that was right there all the time. Emily's watching watch right now, too. Same idea. When I heard Emily say she was going to do when she's starting over, I'm like, yeah, that's probably. Because I, I started with season one and just kind of like tailed off, like didn't didn't follow through with it. But I think I'm going to start. Um, yeah. You know what you shoot two should do for our Patreon folks? Because we need some content for our Patreon folks is make some notes of stuff you didn't catch the first time as you're watching these things and just throw those out there. I think that'd be a good conversation for our Patreon folks. Um, if I could figure out how to do reaction videos, I would just do reaction videos to the beginning. Take your face but, in front of a camera as you're doing right now. and I don't know how to upload them now. I have a bunch saved. Emily knows now. <laughs> She's giving me a look. Okay. Uh, the other thing too, to your uh, Sheridan didn't die piece. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was watching a reaction video from another show, and it was uh, the first episode of the season where Sheridan drops over and presumably drops over dead after he calls out Delenn's name. And they were wondering, okay, what happens to Sheridan now? And then their streaming service had a little next episode, and it had Delenn and Sheridan embracing as the picture. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we can't have spoiler nice things because the streamers don't let it happen. I guess that's what happens when the show's 30 years old, whatever. Okay. Emily questions, predictions. Okay. Let's begin. I have lots of questions and I'm sure you'll appreciate them, but we'll start with my one and only prediction. Garibaldi was turned into a sleeper agent. That's my only prediction. Way to steal Justin's shit from you last week. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm sure he has a lot more in-depth stuff than that. So, question number one, it's kind of two parts. How many Vorlon are actually left? When we first started watching, it was kind of implied that there weren't very many. And then all of a sudden, there's a pocket in hyperspace, and there's thousands of ships. As soon as you said how many Vorlon, I thought we were going to be done again. I thought, okay, oh Christ, here we go. We're going to fall off the rails. But... uh, I'm trying to avoid that particular track, okay? I'm trying really hard. I just want to know how many are left because there was an implication there weren't very many, but now there was thousands of ships hiding, so I'm confused. Kosh said uh, there are so few of us now, whatever that means. So there's a lot of ships, that's for damn sure. What they say, thousands of ships? Yes, and some ships were three to four for, I think they said miles wide, mm-hmm. yep. and I was confused because I didn't even tag those as four-launch ships when they first showed them. That's one I thing I actually liked about, sorry, that's the one thing I liked about the fleet when we saw it. The big ship, you didn't even get a scale of it because all you saw was the, it was like Independence Day. You saw the bottom of the ship and that was it. I was like, that was really smart. Just so you have no idea the scale. You just know that ship's big. 
that's it. Mm -hmm. So question number two, do the Vorlon turn against previous allies since apparently they're now also on the genocide path? Are they just going to try to take out anyone who stands in their way because, you know, people think genocide's bad? Um, Was Lita manipulated by the Vorlon like Anna was by the Shadows? Did they play some kind of mind game alteration with her as well? Let's see, what's next? Um, what program did the pod initiate for Garibaldi? I want to know what the, like, program is that he's now programmed to do. Is he just collecting information and secretly transmitting it back? Does he actually have an action he needs to take out like Talia did? You're going to feel really bad when you find out the program was just launching the escape pod. It's a program initiated after it was launched. Okay. I guess I can't poke at you that way. Fine. No, because I watched the episode repeatedly to make sure I got the timing right. <laughs> Unless the scene sequences were out of order, it wasn't until they, like, latched on to collect the pod. Well, as Blake pointed out earlier, we have scenes that were filmed for previous episodes that just pop in here. So, who knows? Okay, I forgot about this question, so we're about to derail onto the bad track. Uh, do we have to? <laughs> yeah, we do. How did the Vorlon hide inside humans? Is there like a little, do they create a little pouch? Do they hide in the appendix? Where do they go when they're on the inside? I really want to know. I mean, it's fairly clear they're energy beings. So how does energy hide inside of a human? Like energy does. Yeah, I want specifics. <sighs> do I have to draw a diagram like yes. Centauri yeah. mating? You okay. know I like a diagram. <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> Um, the other question was, Kat, what the fuck did Kosh actually do to Lita? Because I feel like there's a lot of stuff going on, and it's why he decided to take everything out of her room and become increasingly hostile towards so her. So you mean, you mean Kosh 2.0, right? Yeah, evil Kosh, Kosh yeah. 2.0. And have the Vorlons ever been the good guys in any of this? Because when we originally started the series, it seemed as though they might be the good guys and the shadows are the bad guys, so to speak. And now I'm more strongly questioning if they ever have been. I'm pretty sure Death Walker would say no. Yeah. She took a laser beam up her ass. So. <laughs> and that was the final question. Cool. And your one prediction was Garibaldi's a sleeper agent, right? Yes, he is. Excellent. Okay. Justin, questions and predictions, please. Uh, for one, I'm not mad at Emily. Um, I'm, it's been a lonely road trip thus far, so I'm glad to have a companion along for the ride. So welcome, Emily. Um, my first question, how in Valen's name are they going to be able to stop this Warline fleet? That seems overwhelming, and I can't even wrap my head around trying to stop that massive fleet, of, you know, at this time. The Warline Armada, we'll call it that. Um, my second question is, does the Warline Death Star have any weaknesses? Maybe a porthole two meters wide that a Star Fury can fire at? Um, um, sir, in the Star Wars Rogue One, we were informed that that was actually not a weakness, but a built-in flaw, uh, sir. Yeah, and see, Justin, you're you're just triggering Scott right now, and I'm here for that, so please continue. Yeah, I just had to drop that in there. Um, do the Vorlons know that Lorien exists? And if they do, do they even care? And then will Lorien even do anything to intervene in this coming conflict between Babylon 5 and the Vorlons? Or is he just going to sit and observe and see what happens? Justin, to your second to last question, we did get a little bit of an answer in the previous episode when Sheridan asked Lorien, did, did Kosh know you were down here? And he said, most assuredly. Oh, I forgot about that. So those are my questions. And then predictions is, 
yeah, this is going to get the, the night is going to get darker before the dawn. Like I thought I was hoping maybe we were going to start coming out of the whole, you know, shadow war thing. I thought maybe we were, we were past the whole, um, the climax of this particular story and we were kind of maybe getting towards the end of it, but I don't even know if that's even true now because now what the Vorlons are doing, what they're doing, they've got to stop not only the shadows from trying to kill everybody, but they've got to now stop the Vorlons from trying to kill everybody. Um, that's a big risk you just took there, Justin, with, you know, nearly 40 some odd episodes left. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. Hey, you know what? I'm almost guaranteed to be right though. Um, <laughs> Sheridan's got to be able to find a way if if OG Kosh is a little bit of OG Kosh is still in Sheridan somewhere. Sheridan's got to be able to find a way to communicate with him and maybe try and get some guidance or something like that, you know, because and I guess it's not a prediction, almost like a wish. Like I want to see Sheridan be able to kind of like establish contact with Kosh to where maybe they can get some help or some answers on how to maybe stop this this fleet. Um and a prediction I thought of as we were kind of going through the recording here. Um, I think the Vorlons were actually the ones who decided their way, way was the only way and attacked the Shadows first. I think the Vorlons started everything. And that's coming a long way because very early on in this show, I was really big Vorlon supporter. And now I'm thinking along the lines of Emily, they may not have been the good guys the whole time. So let me just dig into that a little bit so I, I know what you're saying here. So... Before we even knew the shadows were around, as a viewer, the Vorlons attacked the shadows and started this conflict. I think, well, I'm going to the scene where they're in Sheridan's office talking, mm -hmm. and Sheridan said that, you know, the Vorlons and the shadows kind of peacefully coexisted for a long time. Mm -hmm. until one and then oh. somebody had made the comment that one of them decided that their way was the only way to do things. And then that's when trouble ensued and that's when the war started and everything like that. I think the Vorlons were the ones to yeah. push everything over the edge. So not this current conflict, but millennia ago when all the conflict all started all, yeah. that they were, okay. I got you now. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Is that it? That's it. Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and let our newbies head out the door for this episode now. And again, after the credits, we will go into these questions and predictions with Blake, Kevin, and I. And then next week, we'll be back to talk about falling toward apotheosis. And so uh, until next week, I've been Scott, and with me has been... Emily. Blake. Jesse. <laughs> Justin. And Kevin. So until we get back next week with Falling Toward Apotheosis, again, be sure to check out all the links down below. Our donation page is still open for Extra Life, and we did get a few extra donations after last week's episode, so thank you for that. And you can still donate. All those donations do go to Children's Medical Miracle Network. And then you can find all our social media links down there as well. And if you want to give us a review, that would be great. We haven't had an Apple review in a few weeks, so we would really love that. So just go over to iTunes or Apple and leave a review. And if you're listening through Spotify, you can leave a review to the episode itself, and we'll get that. And then if you're listening to Audible, you can leave a, re leave a review as well. And regardless of where you're listening or watching, click the like, the follow, the subscribe button, whatever you have. That really does help us out. So thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week with another Season 4 episode. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Gray 17, a Babylon 5 podcast. You can find all the places to listen to and watch this podcast at anchor.fm slash gray17podcast or youtube.com at gray17podcast. 
We want to hear from you, so join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, or Patreon. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review where you are listening to or watching this podcast. Gray 17 is not affiliated with, and the podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by Warner Brothers or any other owners of the Babylon 5 copyright. All clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. The opening and closing themes are available from Falling Matter on YouTube. And what's out there? The rim. And beyond that? The truth. Welcome back to Beyond the Rim. Again, if you haven't watched past the summoning or you don't remember what happens after the summoning, you should leave now because we're going to get into spoilers where we're going to discuss all the newbies' questions and predictions. Before we do that, go guys, there's a couple things we wanted to hit on that the newbies hadn't talked about yet. The first one that I just, I love the conversation about Veer, and I love how everyone's pointing out, including myself, that Veer is kind of off on the side, he doesn't really matter, and I'm looking forward to the fact that the newbies are going to find out in really just a few short weeks that Veer's the one who offs the Emperor. Now it is because everything gets a little clusterfuck before then, but Veer's the one who stabs the needle into the Emperor's heart, and uh, I love that Veer gets to have the killing blow. Yeah, you know, Veer is such a um, you know, kind-hearted guy for the most part that you would never think that he would be the guy to do that. But as you point out, he does. Um, and it's, it's great because Stephen first is wonderful in this role and, you know, it's an ensemble cast. There's tons of them. So, you know, none of them probably gets to do enough, but he definitely is uh, one that, um, deserved more work because what he did was amazing. Yeah, and I think part of that with Veer, especially in the writing, is he is the unsuspecting one. Mm. I really don't think leading up to that episode when Veer grabs that poison pen and stabs it into Cartesia's chest, I don't think anyone sees it coming. Because Veer's not the guy that's going to assassinate the Emperor. I think Mondo yeah. even makes a joke about it in the episode of, you know, how far Veer's come that he's the one that assassinates the Emperor. Even the Emperor gives Veer a look like, really? You're the one who's going to do this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as he's going down. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing what the newbies have to say about that, because Veer is a great character. All our newbies love Veer, but he is unsuspecting, and the fact that he's going to be the one who finally gets to do the deed is just perfect. The other thing I wanted to throw out there as, uh, and this this kind of came to my mind when Justin was talking about how it's going to get darker with the Shadow War, and I know the show hasn't brought it up much lately, but we haven't even been talking about the Earth Civil War, and our newbies have kind of seemed to not bring that up at all. Even Justin, who likes to like talk about what's going on back home and everything, we haven't really talked about it for a while. So it's 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 interesting that this has kind of taken a backseat for both the show as well as for our newbies. There's and also ahead, there's Justin. also a situation in this episode that uh, Jerry Doyle talks about. He goes to his trailer after what he thought was the first last scene for the episode and and to the the stylist who's taking care of his uh, hair. Uh, you know, says, okay, uh, I'm done. I want this hair off. So, you know, chop it off, shave my head. And then he talks to somebody on the crew. He's like, okay, I'll see you Thursday or whatever. And it's like, no, we'll see you tomorrow. There's one more scene. He's like, fuck. 
So he goes to the director and he's like, hey, uh, this happened, so how are we going to play this? And he says they they fashioned something, he looked like a Chia pet, and they didn't want him to be uh, on screen very much. They really put him into the background. But of course, you know, the, the character in um, a pretty good chunk of this uh, this season is going to be, um, you know, at, at odds with particularly Sheridan and is going to be kind of in the background in some ways. It, certainly completely different from how we've seen him up until this point in the series. To the production crew's credit, I didn't even catch that. You brought it up a few minutes ago and I had not even caught that ever. I do like, though, when he's in the back of the Zocalo watching and obviously in the Lorien scene you really get it but even in the back of the Zocalo you're kind of seeing him kind of give like shifty eyes to Sheridan like this is weird mm-hmm. this dude was dead and he even Sheridan even said I, I died uh, so I, I like that they're playing that up now as we kind of get into this because yes to Emily's prediction when we get to Emily's prediction Garibaldi is a sleeper agent but for the for the most part you could kind of see Garibaldi coming from this uh, coming down this path by himself too uh, this yeah. is just kind of weird I was just gonna say that because you've got Sheridan come back and almost gets this messianic thing around him and Garibaldi would be the type of guy that's just weirded out by that mm-hmm. and not necessarily comfortable with that or trusting of outside influences all of a sudden coming in so, you know, all of a sudden you've got Lorien, you've got Sheridan, who's kind of a second coming of Christ type thing at this point. And you can see where it goes without necessarily buying in that he's a sleeper agent or is being manipulated. Yeah. And of course, you know, you also get the messianic thing later where, um, you know, Garibaldi basically is, you know, pretty near to Judas uh, at, <laughs> at, at one point. It, it The whole thing, it, I don't. I don't love this season because you spend a lot of it disliking, almost hating Garibaldi, even though you know it's not really him. Uh, But it is interesting, and it does give Jerry Doyle something interesting to do uh, that uh, he can really chew on as an actor that's different from how he's been the rest of the series. I think that's the brilliance of the writing, though, because when you get to the end of the day, if you didn't have that episode that reveals what really happened, that Garibaldi was manipulated into this, Mm -hmm. it would perfectly fit with the story that this was just Garibaldi. Mm -hmm. I do like the fact, too, because I'm, I'm, Kevin, I'm in the same boat, and I'm interested to see how I feel about season four after we watch it week to week, because I'm not, I have never been really a big fan of the Garibaldi plot for many reasons. Mm-hmm. I, 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 like, I agree with you that it makes sense, but I, I, I question a couple of things about it, which we'll get into when we get into it. But what I do find interesting and I love, and I've always said that I'm a big fan of Deconstruction of Falling Stars, which is the second season finale for season four. And Garibaldi is the last person, aside from Delenn, who gets to say something of the uh, the main cast for the end of the season, and his line is, sleep well, friends. So he gets to kind of have a little bit of a, a comeback uh, at the end of that. And, of course, season five, we get a very big comeback. As we mentioned, Garibaldi's probably the only guy of the main cast who gets, like, a truly happy ending, which is interesting. So we'll talk about it. So let's get into the newbies' questions. And the first one is, what's going to happen to Lita now that she's working against the Vorlons? And, of course, we can make some jokes about season five while we're out there, too. <laughs> yeah, I got nothing on this one. But, I mean, again, 
season four is so compacted. And if you're just joining us, we talked about this uh, on the first episode. We're going to go out of our way not to talk to the newbies about why season four was compacted like it is to a point where JMS thought this was the last season. Uh, PTN was shutting down. There was no guarantee anyone was going to pick it up. So at this point, he is driving towards the series finale being the end of season four. To that point, Kosh 2.0 will be dead soon. So, and the Vorlons will be literally out of the galaxy in what, two episodes? So it really doesn't matter what happens to Lita in this case. Now, what happens to Lita later really does matter, especially when she gets in the forefront of the telepath piece in season five. I do find it fascinating, though. We get pointed out here that Lita has everything taken away from her. She's not allowed to have anything but a mattress, and that's just so she can sleep. But she will point out, after the Vorlons are gone, that people are still using her. When Zack comes and she points out that, why won't people just, you know, call me when they want to hang out? Everyone's just using me. So I think Lita kind of goes through a lot throughout this process. Mm-hmm. And if we want to go really deep into it, Lita blows up uh, Psychor headquarters and dies with Lanier. That's what happens to Lita. Thanks, books. Okay, next up, how long do we have to wait to see the Emperor murdered? Not real long. Not that Same much idea. longer. Season four is a train, man, and it's chucking along. Not that kind of train, kids. The real kind of train. Uh, how many Vorlons are left? Uh, my guess is they've mastered automation. Yeah, well, the ships are bio ships. We know right. that. I almost pointed out to Emily, but I stopped myself. Right. We've been told many times that the ships are alive. And I spoil things, so I shut up. <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's really not that many Vorlon. Uh, I think you can, you know, make a list that's not too long and it would cover every single Vorlon there is. I think that their ships are automated and that's why we have all those ships. And of course, they said thousands, but you even saw on the screen, a lot of them like little fighters or whatever you want to call them too. So they're very small. Well, because even with shadow vessels, they don't have shadows in them. A lot of them they're using humans. Mm-hmm. Set up for pilots, so who knows whatever the hell the Vorlons are doing, whether it be automation or something else. Mm-hmm. Do the Vorlons turn against previous allies, taking out anyone who stands in their way? Yes. Yes. And it's we set so you to watch the road home because <laughs> that kind of drives home the point. Yep, and that's the way it was going to be if they hadn't been stopped, because it's even said so in this episode. They are getting rid of anything that has been touched by the shadows, and we know. Mars has been touched by the shadows. We know Ganymede has been touched by the shadows. So they're going to come for everybody. Obviously, Centauri Prime has been touched by the shadows. Mm. Yeah, Justin predicted how bad it was going to be mm-hmm. uh, previous to this, yep. and then he didn't really mention that aspect of it. I, I was expecting him to bring it up because, uh, I don't know, I feel like, you know, JMS is putting it on a billboard that Centauri Prime is going to be in trouble now. Next up, was Lita manipulated by the Vorlon like the Shadows do to other humans? I, yes and no. I mean, I think Lita's been modified, but I don't think it's the same type of manipulation as what the Shadows have done. You know, it's not creating a willing servant to what to do. Lita still has, I think, more free will than what the Servants of the Shadows do. Mm-hmm. I thought her comment was really interesting. You know, Delenn says, you know, they can't do this to you about taking away all your stuff. And Lita says, actually, he can or they can. And I, I, 
I'm not sure what's really behind that, and I'd love your perspective because I think that line is it could be seen as a throwaway, but I think it's more important than it seems. Uh, you know what? What exactly is their power over her? I realize she's been modified. I realize that she carries them. Like I get all that, but you know why? Why do they have such a hand in her after hours life? Why is she um, basically their um, slave, really. I mean, she's certainly, you know, they pointed out it was an abusive relationship. I mean, look at master-slave relationships throughout history. There wasn't really a time that those in servitude really had to themselves. True. They were at the service of whoever the master was. And given how Vorlons view any of the lesser races, they view Lita is, has no purpose there other than to serve their needs, period. Well, uh, Olkosh says a couple episodes ago, you can have your own time for a while. And I I don't think at all that Lita is being manipulated mentally. I don't think that there's any like Vorlon in her telling her what to do, no sleeper or anything like that. Mm. I just think she's scared to death. These are extremely powerful beings who literally are beings of energy that could take over her body if they wanted to, as they've done multiple times. And she's just scared that they're going to hurt her. I think she's more scared that she could get hurt than killed because killing her will at least stop the pain. Mm. But she's just in fear. So I think that's how she's being manipulated more so than telepathically or whatever. So moving on that same line, what did, and I think this has kind of been answered already, but I'll ask it anyway. What did Kosh 2.0 do to her? Yeah, I, I think we have kind of already answered it. It's really the point that you know she is she is their slave. They can they can do what they want. She's not allowed to have uh, any any comforts at all. Um, she lives to serve them only. And physically, they've given her the ability to breathe other atmospheres. And she has alluded to that she's been upgraded as a telepath. Mm -hmm. so. She was a P5 before, just like um, yeah. Talia. Just like Talia. There's no way. And they, they really get into that in season five, that she's clearly mm -hmm. not a P5 anymore. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, and then Emily just had to try to take us down a path. How do Vorlons hide inside humans? I'm not even going to ask this, guys, but I am going to ask the audience. If you want to draw a diagram on social media and send it to us, I will give it to Emily, and she can see the diagram. So if you want to draw one, you knock yourself out. Have the Vorlons really ever been the bad guys? Well, this goes back to the gathering. Oh, good guys. I'm sorry, the good guys. So this goes back to the gathering, and in the line JMS wrote into the show, Nobody is who they seem to be. And this show has had nobody is good, nobody is bad. This show exists within that gray area where, I mean, look at Londo. He's had moments where Londo has been the hero. He's had moments where Londo has been absolutely despicable. And even Jakar early on was the villain. And now Jakar is one of the people we admire most in the series. Nobody is who they appeared to be at the start of this, or even now, I don't think. Yeah, and OG Kosh, you know, he he had a couple of moments where he was a bad dude, but for the most part, he, he just him, not a representative of the Vorlon Empire, but just him, was a 
pretty decent guy, but he beat the crap out of Sheridan at one point. So, you know, he, he definitely is not all good, but it, it really depends on, you know, whether you're talking about just the Vorlons in general or whether you're talking about OG Kosh because the Vorlons are not good. That's pretty clear now. I mean, they're willing to take, take 4 million people beings and just swat them like flies to uh have their end goal but um cash wasn't a bad dude for the most part mm-hmm. and you know we've had this conversation in previous episodes but uh there, i think kosh had a turning point sometime during this show and again it's debatable when it happened but i think kosh learned because he had such a close connection to humans being on b5 and all races not just humans that there's more to these folks than just being pawns on the board. And that's where Kosh started to work mm-hmm. with Sheridan and get him ready. So um, I think Kosh very much was different than most Vorlons. The big question for me always is, and I'll never get a true answer, but when did Kosh decide to break that cycle much as Sheridan's going to break that cycle as well? You know, I wonder if it has anything to do with Delenn. I mean, she was the one that convinced Kosh to save Sheridan's life at the end of season two. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Delenn had anything to do with that because she she spoke pretty passionately to uh, new asshole Kosh mm-hmm. about, um, you know, what the first Kosh was like and... And then, you know, she says, I'll have no more respect for you. Um, you know, you're, she, she said a lot of stuff. It was all, you know, pretty, pretty spot on, not hateful, but demeaning um, purposely. Uh, I wonder if OG Kosh really had um, a pretty profound respect for her that transcended, you know, any other relationship with a lesser race than anything else. I mean, he he clearly felt it was necessary to save Sheridan, but she was the one that really egged him on to do that. It's a good point, and as we'll find out within the beginning, Kosh has been with Delenn a lot longer mm-hmm. than he's with Sheridan, so... Last Vorlon question, how are they going to be able to stop this Vorlon Armada? And does the Vorlon Death Star have a weak spot? (laughs) Again, because season four is moving so quickly, it doesn't matter. The Vorlons are going to blow up a lot of planets for a few days. But at the end of the day, there's not going to be that major knockdown, dragged out conflict because Sheridan knows they can't win against that. What they can do is they can get them to understand that it's time to move on and that this war is a waste. So it's going to be more metaphysical, yeah, philosophical, than it is going to be violent. It just sort of ends and everybody leaves. Mm-hmm. And then we deal with the real crust, uh, cups, uh, the real deal with season four, which is the year of civil war. Uh, what program did the pod initiate? Garibaldi's pod. Was loading Apple updates. <laughs> if it's going to do that, it's never going to update. So as, as I'm delaying my Android update right now. Oh, I do that all the time. Like uh, you said, I have five days, so I have five days. Yeah, it, it was waking Garibaldi up. And we will see a couple times throughout the season that he will get packets of download information uh, to update his uh, firmware, I guess, is the way to put it. So we'll see that a couple times where he'll be um, activated. 
And then finally for questions, will Lorien take an active role in the conflict or is he just an observer? I mean, he'll take a bit of an active role in that he kind of invites the Vorlons and the Shadows to just join them all by, beyond the rim. But I mean, he's not going to actively like jump in and do shit beyond that. Yeah, he doesn't no. turn into the Incredible Hulk at any point. But <laughs> He lets Sheridan make the calls. He, yeah. He's there to advise Sheridan. He knows what needs to happen, but he's also trying to push the the minor races but more so the human race towards recognizing that there's more to it i think in you know another star trek reference all good things uh, q is there to just get picard to realize there's more than pew pew shields and stuff you gotta realize you can do more than what you thought you could do and that's what he's there for predictions garibaldi's a sleeper agent ding 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 <laughs> Yeah, they don't they don't hold that card back very much, so we're gonna get more details on that. I'm uh, you know, last week the the newbies mentioned or asked where Bester was in all this, so I'm looking forward when they realize that Bester is at the heart of this too, because that'll be a very interesting dynamic moving forward. And then uh, again, Justin's very risky prediction: the night is going to get darker before the dawn. Yes, it's called season five before sleeping in the light. Oh, womp womp. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, again, though, I, I'm very interested to see how the newbies, specifically Justin, handles the quick wrap-up of the Shadow War. It's what we've been building towards since the middle of Season 1, and it will be wrapped up very, very quickly. And I'll be interested to see how they de deal with that, again, because meta-wise, they're not going to realize that this is the last season of the show as they're writing this show. So we'll see what happens with that. I'll be interested to see if he's happy with the outcome. Previously, I've not been sad about that when I watched the series because mm -hmm. I like Earth stuff better. Mm -hmm. But when you, you know, when you say there's only, you know, two, three episodes left of, you know, the shadow stuff, it's, uh, yeah, it's disappointing that they didn't get the, the two season wrap up to the series that he had envisioned. I certainly want to go to that parallel universe to see that, but that doesn't happen. It's kind of like the same one where you actually get a decent ending to game of Thrones, but whatever. Mm, we've had that conversation, uh, but yeah, I mean, next week we have Kosh 2.0 gets killed. And then the week after that, the shadows ramp up the war. And then the week after that is into fire. And it's over. So we have three episodes left of the Shadow War. And then finally, oh, actually, no, there's two more. Sheridan will establish contact with Kosh next episode because Kosh will be a part of the killing of Kosh 2.0. And then finally, and this one, I don't know if we have an answer to this, guys. If we do, it's in like beta canon books and comics that I have no clue. But uh, Justin thinks that the Vorlons were the ones who started the conflict back when it started whenever that was an interesting philosophical question that i don't think we're ever going to get any sort of answer to i'd be shocked if we did but i don't know i mean it it's always going to be that no matter how many times you watch the series you're going to get pulled as a viewer into the the dynamic of well the vorlons are better than the shadows at least a little bit 
and that's that's a clear choice by JMS to try and misdirect a little bit that way. But um, you know, in, in that sense, you know, I, I'm inclined to think that it was the shadows, but I'm you really got to pull yourself out of that because the Vorlons are no better. They just have window dressing that the shadows don't have. Mm-hmm. If I had to put money on who started it, I think I would still say the shadows just because they are the the philosophy of chaos. Right. I think they would want to start something. But I bet you it would be like a mutually assured destruction. As soon as somebody lifts a weapon, the other uh, side fires as well. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of a moot point who started it because they both got into it. Um, Can we infer anything from Kosh, OG Kosh, dying at the hands of the – the shadows after he got uh, involved in a way that they didn't like. Can we infer anything from that on this on this question? I think I think so because the, the reason why they took Kosh out is because he didn't play the game right. Right. So yeah. My 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 guess is among anything else that the the shadows would not feel like if they did it that it was they were doing something wrong but they won't allow the Vorlons to do it. So that's, I'm with you, Scott. I think it was the shadows that shot first, but we'll never know. We also find out a little bit of the ship. Oh, go ahead, Blake. And and I'm not so convinced you could either say it was the shadows or the Vorlons that took the first shot. You know, I, especially with what you were talking about and inferring from the scene when the shadows killed Kosh 1.0 is I think the shadows and the Vorlons had very clear rules of engagement that Mm -hmm. they stayed out of it directly. They didn't go at each other. That's a good point. They used the races that they were interacting with as pawns to do it for them. And at somewhere along the way, did their, you know, did the Vorlons need for order be, well, we can't have order with our races until we go make order with all these having chaos over here with the shadows. And then the shadows are going, well, we can't have our races having conflict if we don't go point them towards these yeah. folks over here. Like, so I think that's where along the way is, is where it all went wrong. Like, I think that's the answer. Uh, and the, the reason why this conflict went differently is because, one, Kosh got shared and more prepared than anyone else has been before, and the shadows didn't take that well, and that just kind of spiraled everything out of the from there on in. And, of course, when Sheridan's the first guy to drop a nuke on Zaha Doom, that changes things, too. It opens an unexpected door. Yeah, John Nukem Sheridan. <laughs> and does love that's what he's boom. good at. Star killer. That's what he's good at. Okay, so that's the end of the questions predictions. Anything else you guys want to bring up before we close this sucker out? Okay. So we'll go ahead and end our conversation there. We'll be back next week to discuss falling towards apotheosis. Until then, I've been Scott and with me has been Blake and Kevin. And please, again, be sure to check out all our social medias, like, subscribe, follow, do all that. And if you can, Please, please, please leave us a review. That really does help the show grow. And if you want to join us over on our Discord, join our Patreon at any level, and you can do that as well, too. And, again, a final thank you to our great council members, our producers who are listed down below, who do so much to help us continue to grow this show. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next week when we go kill Gavorlon. It's going to be great. Cool. Yay. Have a good one. I'm picking something up. A unicorn? A unicorn?